You know, I believe that the Holy Spirit has brought us here together for a very special purpose. Would you agree? I mean, we could be anywhere else in the world. But God, in His divine timing, knew that we would be here, and He brought us together to study His Word. And as we've looked throughout the time of this seminar, we realize that we're living in the very last days of Earth's history. Now, I'm not saying that in a fanatical sense, like the world's coming to an end tomorrow, and therefore give your life to God. No, we give our lives to God regardless of how long it takes for Jesus to come back, right? But we realize that there is an urgency in the times that we're living in that Jesus is coming very soon. And the reason why God has brought us together to study the book of Revelation is because Revelation testifies of that very fact. That it tells us about Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And also that the book of Revelation tells us about the many delusions and deceptions that Satan would be bringing upon this earth to try to pull away God's people. How many of you are thankful that we have a God who warns us? Is anyone thankful for that? Sometimes we don't like it in the meantime, right? Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 12, that sometimes when God rebukes us or chastens us, it's not very pleasant in the moment, right? But afterwards, he says, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. In other words, when God warns us of things, sometimes we're closely connected with that. But God is saying, I'm telling you because I love you, that I'm calling you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, before we begin, I keep to do this many nights, and there's been a question that has been asked, and I've forgotten to answer it multiple nights in a row, and I haven't reminded anyone else, and they haven't reminded me, and the question that came in, we're just going to answer this before we jump into the presentation, sorry it's scattered, I keep forgetting, but here it is, the question that some people have been asking is, you know, the Bible talks about the importance of spending a day to worship God, right, the fourth commandment. And many of us have had the desire to say, Lord, I want to keep that day holy. I want to spend that time with you. And some people have asked the question, you know, and they've even checked on their cards, I want to keep the Sabbath. Well, what does that mean? Is it something that I can just do at home? Is the Sabbath something that I can keep just on my couch and in my sofa? Or does the Bible have a fuller meaning to the Sabbath? Now, this is the question, and we want to give a fair answer from the Bible. Now, if you were asking me, I like to sit on my couch, so I'm not going to give you my own answer of what would be best. But the question is, what constitutes how we're supposed to keep the Sabbath? Well, I want to ask you a question. Where do we look for all of our answers in the Bible? Well, we realize that the Bible in its whole gives us the answer, but we also realize that the life of Jesus gives us very clear instruction. Would you agree with that? Turn with me in your Bibles, looking at this question. Is it possible just to keep the Sabbath at home? What was Jesus' example? Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, and we're just going to look at these two passages of Scripture briefly as we answer this question, and then we will get into our topic for tonight. Luke chapter 4, and we're looking at Jesus' example here. We want to know, is it possible just to keep the Sabbath at home? Is it possible to keep the Sabbath by ourselves? Is this something, if the Lord's convicting us of it, how is it that we can follow His command? Notice what it says, Luke chapter 4 and verse 16. Luke chapter 4 and verse 16, speaking about Jesus, notice what it says Jesus' custom was. It says, so he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. Who is this speaking about? Jesus. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue where? On the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. Now this is very interesting. Jesus had a custom of how he was accustomed to keeping the Sabbath. And his custom was, did he just stay at home or stay close to the carpenter shop or stay with family and friends? Is that what he did? No, it says Jesus, in keeping the Sabbath, spent time in the synagogue. And the word for synagogue is assembly. In other words, he spent time with other like-minded believers on the seventh-day Sabbath. 
Now, was that just a spur-of-the-moment, spasmatic type of practice for Jesus? Is that what the Bible says? No, it says it was his custom, right? I hope many of us have a custom that we all follow, and that's the custom of brushing our teeth, right? Now, if you don't, have, if you don't brush your teeth every day, can someone call that your custom? Oh, no, I brush my teeth on, once a year. You know, that's my custom. No, no, no. Jesus' custom was very consistent and very, pra- or very um, precise in the fact that he spent time with others on the Sabbath day. So there's no bad time to worship at home, but the Sabbath is a wonderful time to worship together. Now, one more passage of Scripture. Just looking, what does the Bible say? Isaiah chapter 66. We see Jesus' custom was going to church on the Sabbath, not just spending time with God by Himself, but it was time to be with other like-minded believers, and if we want to follow His example, that's what we should follow. But notice Isaiah chapter 66. Does the Bible give us any more instruction about how the Sabbath will be kept? Notice the setting of the passage here. Isaiah chapter 66, beginning in verse 22. Isaiah chapter 66, beginning in verse 22, towards the end of the chapter and end of the book of Isaiah, and notice the time period that Isaiah is talking about here in Isaiah chapter 66, beginning in verse 22. Notice what he says. He says, For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, says the Lord. Now when is the Lord going to make a new heaven and a new earth? Remember we've studied this together, right? Revelation chapter 21, after Jesus comes a second time, after the judgment, after the thousand years of the millennium, the wicked are destroyed, and then Revelation 21 tells us that there's a new heaven and a new earth that's going to be created, right? That's another way of saying that it's going to be heaven that God is going to be taking us to. So notice the setting here. God is talking about what's going to be happening in heaven, and he says, for as a new heaven and a new earth, which I will make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain. But notice verse 23. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, that's the idea of a month, right? We get our monthly cycle based off of the moon. So from one month to another, one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come before me to worship, says the Lord. Now this is very interesting. We're asking the question, what does the Bible say? Do we need to gather together for worship on Sabbath, or is it something we can keep by ourselves? Well, Jesus' example, Luke chapter 4, verse 16, is he went to the synagogue. He met with other like-minded believers. He spent that time together. We see that in the new heavens and the new earth, in heaven, we're going to be going before God, worshiping Him on His Sabbath day, spending that time with Him. So I want to ask you, Do you think from the example of Jesus and the example of what's going to be going on in heaven that we can have clear evidence for the ways that we should walk on this earth? You know, Hebrews chapter 10 tells us, let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhort one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. You see, Satan knows that if he can pull us off by ourselves, that he can discourage us, and like an ember pulled from the fire, we will quickly go out if we're by ourselves, right? But Jesus says, hey, if you want to spend time, if you want to get to know me, if you want to keep my Sabbath, the way to do it is by spending time with other like-minded believers coming together and worshiping the God of creation. Isn't that what Sabbath is all about? Remembering that Jesus is our Redeemer, and that God is our Creator, and that He's the one who gives us life and hope today. Well, I hope that answers the question. I'm sorry it had been delayed to be answered, but I hope that it will be helpful. If you have any more questions, please make sure to put them in the question jar, and we will try to get to them. We only have Thursday night left and Sabbath morning left, and well, then we start phase two, or we've already started the phase two, but we will continue the Daniel class on Tuesday nights, 
Thursday nights and Sabbath morning. So you can continue to ask questions. We'll answer questions there. But if you have any other questions, please make sure to put them in the jar. Okay, now that we're done with the introduction and the questions, we can get into the meat of the message. And how many of you realize that we need the Holy Spirit to guide us this evening? You know, it's not a pastor that guides us. It's not ourselves that can guide ourselves, right? We, we don't even know how to go in or come, come out is what Isaiah tells us. You know, we don't even know what to do. But really what we need is the Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth. And that's why we're here together this evening. And so we want to ask that the Lord would be with us at this time. Why don't we pray together and ask for His blessing. Father in heaven, Lord, You see us here this evening. We're gathered as Your people because, Lord, we desire to know more about Jesus. Father, we've been here night after night learning the beautiful truths of Your Bible that point us to the grace and mercy of Jesus. Father, we're so thankful that You're a God who continues to lead us. That You never leave us or forsake us. And Father, we want to be a faithful people who follow Jesus wheresoever He goes, just like we learned last night. Father, we just pray that our hearts would be open to the moving of Your Holy Spirit tonight. That we would sense Your presence. That we would hear Your voice calling us. And Father, we pray that You would speak to us. Lord, I have no words of myself to share with anyone. And so Lord, we pray that You would speak to each one of our hearts that the Spirit of truth would guide us into all truth and that we would understand You in a clearer way. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, tonight's topic is a very important topic. We're looking at the topic of the scarlet woman of Revelation. This is Revelation chapter 17. And in this topic, we answer the question, why are there so many denominations? Now, I don't know if you're anything like me, but oftentimes I have wondered the question, why in the world, if there is one Bible, why are there thousands and thousands of different denominations? Many people wonder and ask that same question. And I don't know if you've ever been curious before, but sometimes I remember visiting a hotel and looking for a church nearby. And so I opened one of the little Yellow Pages books. And as I opened the book, I noticed that there wasn't just one church listed. Have you ever realized that? But there's actually pages upon pages of churches that are listed in the yellow pages. You can see here that there's a multiplicity of different options and you start to wonder why is it that there's so many different denominations? If there's one God and there's one Lord, why is there thousands of churches? Now am I the only one who's ever wondered this question before? Can we admit that sometimes we have these questions that run through our mind? And the average person is really confused by this, and I think Satan loves to use this as a reason to confuse people in the world today. You see, Satan causes us to think, well, if there's one God and there's one Bible, but thousands of different understandings, then can I really understand the Bible? Have you ever wondered that? You know, there's, there's hundreds of people here in this area who might believe different things than me and they read the same Bible. Maybe it's the fact that I can't understand the Bible. Maybe they can't understand the Bible. Maybe no one can understand the Bible. And I want to ask you the question, has God given us a book tonight that we can't understand? Now, don't get me wrong, we can't understand it on our own, but through the Holy Spirit, the Lord can teach us what His Word says, right? And we realize that if there's one Bible, why is it that there's so many different denominations in the world today? Well, we're going to look at a couple passages of Scripture tonight that kind of help us to understand this question. Because many people say, well, maybe it doesn't matter what you believe. You know, maybe it's that all roads just lead to heaven anyway. Maybe it doesn't really matter what the Bible says. As long as you just kind of believe something, you end up 
in heaven. Turn with me in your Bibles just really quick. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And this is a powerful passage of Scripture where Paul is talking about unity constantly throughout the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. And notice what Paul talks about. When he's talking about unity and the call that God has for every one of his followers, notice what he says here. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4, and this is right after 1 and 2 Corinthians. And then you go back a little bit further and you get to some of the letters of Paul, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, right in there. And you see that Ephesians there, Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. Notice this. We want to see it with our own eyes. What does the Bible say? Is it God's will that there's one Bible, but yet a thousand different churches? Notice what the Bible says here. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4. Now it says, there is one, what's that word? One body. Okay, we'll come back to that. And one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord and one what? What's that word? One faith and one baptism. One God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Now did you notice something interesting about this? Paul says there's one God. There's one Lord. And because of that, there should only be how many faiths? One faith. Now, do you realize that we have a little bit more than one faith in the world today? There's many different things. And also, he says that there is one body. I want to ask you, who is the body of Christ? Isn't that what the Bible refers to as his church, right? You know, Christ is the head and his church is the body. And he says that there's one body. There's one faith. And the question is then, why are there so many different denominations? Does it really matter what we believe today? Does the Bible have insightful information to help us to know how it is that we can make sure that we're walking according to the will of the Lord? You know, I think it's very sobering to me as I realize that there's so much confusion or such a large spectrum in the world today that this is why we need the humility of the Lord to say, Lord, we need your spirit to guide us, right? We need you to guide us into all truth. We don't, we don't know these things on our own, but the Lord is telling us that there is one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. Now, I think you guys realize something, that we live in a society that is very pluralistic. Do you know what, I'm, what I mean when I say that? In other words, what's right for my wife might be right for her, but it doesn't mean that it's right for me. Have you ever heard this type of, of phraseology? Or, well, we're postmodern. You know, there is no truth. It doesn't really matter what you believe. As long as you believe it, that's what's truth for you. And then I have my own truth. But is that what the Bible says? Does the Bible say that there's a, a different version of truth for each person? That there's a different God for each person? Or does it say that there's one truth and that there is one Bible and one Lord? Notice a couple passages of Scripture that we're going to look at that help answer this question. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. Notice what Paul says here. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, it says, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of what? Of a truth? Is that what it says? Of the truth. Now, some of you have studied English before, maybe in high school or maybe in elementary school, and I want to ask you, what does the article the indicate? Does it indicate more than one or just one? It indicates one, right? If you were going to say that there's more than one, you would use an indirect article and you would use the, the word a or something like that. But you realize that the Bible says that he's telling us how we ought to conduct ourselves in the church of God 
And what is the very foundation or the pillar and the ground of the church of God? It says it's the truth. You see, we live in a society today that isn't so interested in the truth. You know, we're, we live in a society that's more interested in, well, what I've always done, or what's right for me, or what's right for them. But God says that might be good and fine, and, and you might believe that, but the reality is, is that the goal and the job of the church in this day and age is to do nothing else except to stand on the truth of God's Word. Would you agree with that? How many of you think that we need to just go finding a church for any other reason than it's the truth that God teaches in the Bible? You see, he's very profound about this. God doesn't want us to think that there's a multiplicity of reasons that we, we follow him, or there's a bunch of different variations for how we can follow God, but God tells us that there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and here in 1 Timothy, that there's one truth. Now, notice why is truth so important to God? Have you ever wondered that? You know, truth seems like such a, a small thing in our society. Feelings are much more important in our society. Have you realized that? Well, that might be true, but I just don't feel that way. Have you ever heard someone say that to you? Well, notice that why truth is so important to Jesus. Notice what he says in John chapter 17 and verse 17. Here's Jesus' final prayer to his Father in the Garden of Gethsemane, and notice what he says. He says, sanctify them by your what? Your truth, and what is truth? Your word is truth. Isn't that what Jesus says? Sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. What does it mean to sanctify? We looked at this term last night again, and it means to set apart, right? Or to differentiate between yourself and another. God tells us that the truth of the Bible is so important because it's the truth of God that separates us from the world. Would you agree with that? You know, it's not just what I feel, or we, we don't walk by faith, we walk by faith, not by sight, right? In other words, it's not just what I think, but really what's important is what does the truth of God say? As we follow the truth of God, we realize it has a sanctifying influence upon our hearts. It's what changes us, it's what molds us, and it's what transforms us by the grace of Jesus. You see, this is why the Bible says truth is so important. Notice again why truth is important to Jesus. What does John say in John chapter 8? John chapter 8, verse 31. And we're going to see if we can remedy this just very briefly. John chapter 8 and verse 31. Notice what Jesus says. John chapter 8 and verse 31. Notice what Jesus says here. It says, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed in Him, If you abide in My Word, you are My disciples Indeed, I want to ask you a question. If we don't abide in the Word of Jesus, are we Jesus' disciples? We know that the Word of Jesus is His truth, right? I mean, I'm, I'm just asking questions from what the verse says, right? I'm not trying to be straightforward in an arbitrary way, but notice what the Bible says. Jesus says that if you abide in My Word, and we know that His Word is truth, and that's what we're sanctified by, if we abide in that, that we are His disciples indeed. And then he continues on and he says, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall what? Make you free. Isn't that the beauty of the Bible? Do you think Satan wants us to be free today? Do you think Satan wants us to be enslaved to the things of this world and to the habits of this life? Absolutely. Jesus is the one who came to give us freedom. Jesus is the one who came to set us free from the law of sin and of death, and Jesus is the one who wants us to have victory in our lives, but it's Satan who wants us to stay in bondage. 
And Jesus says, you know, the way that you can have freedom is by knowing the truth of God. Now, notice what Jesus says here. He says, and you shall know, what's that word there? The truth. Once again, we see that there's not a multiplicity of truths. There's not a hundred different options. This isn't Baskin-Robbins when we come to the Bible, right? It's not that there's different flavors for each different person, but the Bible says that there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and that you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Do you think if Satan can distort the truth and cause us to believe something else, that maybe that's why we don't experience the freedom sometimes in our lives? You see, Satan wants to hold us in bondage, and if he can distort the truth, it keeps us from experiencing the freedom that God longs to give. You know, John chapter 18 gives us an interesting story about Jesus. John chapter 18, we're going to look at this together. Open your Bibles with me there. John chapter 18, the Gospel of John, chapter 18 and verse 33. Now, this is an experience where Jesus has with Pilate. And he's there on his way to Calvary, and Jesus has this exchange in John chapter 18. John chapter 18, Jesus begins this exchange with Pilate. And notice the words that they have here. John chapter 18 and verse 33. Notice what it says. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or do others tell you this concerning me? Notice verse 35. Pilate answered, said, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Now notice this part that Jesus gets to in verse 36. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Now notice Pilate asked the question. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? And Jesus answered, and this is the key that we're looking for, you say rightly that I am king, and for this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world. Now, let's just pause there really quick. Jesus is having this exchange with Pilate, and he's, he's going through this back and forth motion of are you asking questions on your own, or are you just having someone else ask you that? And Jesus finally gets to the point where he says, yes, I'm a king, and this is the reason why I've come, and why is the very reason that Jesus gives to Pilate for him coming to this earth? Notice what he says. You have rightfully said, for I am a king, and for this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should do what? Bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Now, I don't, in the society we live in, truth is so undermined, but Jesus is telling us that truth was so important to him that the reason why Jesus came down on this earth is to bear witness of what? The truth. How many of you would say that the truth, therefore, is something that's important? That it's something that we shouldn't just cast aside? That if Jesus tells us that the truth is what caused him to leave heaven to come to this earth, that maybe the truth should have a little more value in our lives. Now, when Jesus stands there and tells Pilate, that the reason why he came was to bear witness of the truth. Notice what happens next. 
Verse 38, Pilate said to him, what is truth? Now, how many of you realize that this same question is being asked in the world today? What is truth? Can we even know truth? And here Jesus is, and Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And here the truth is standing right before Pilate, and God is giving the opportunity for Pilate to understand what truth is. And Pilate says, what is truth? And what do you think would be the best reaction that Pilate could have at that point? to close your mouth and open your ears, right? What is Jesus going to tell us about what the truth is? But you know, notice what happens. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. I wonder how many people in society, and not even pointing fingers at others, I wonder about my own heart and your own heart. How many times do we come to the Lord and say, Lord, what is truth? We realize that it's important to Jesus, and we say, Lord, what is truth? And God brings us into a point where we can come in contact with truth, but instead of staying around to listen to what God says, we hurry up and get out of there because we're afraid that the Lord might tell us something we don't want to hear. You realize that we live in such a society that wants nothing to do with truth, and we're really not much different than Pilate today. You know, Jesus tells us that He came to bear witness of the truth that truth is important to Jesus, and that this is why we need truth today. Now, I want to ask you, for Pilate, what do you think one of the primary causes was that kept him from allowing Jesus to answer his question, what is truth? Well, we could speculate a little bit, but Pilate didn't seem like the most humble individual. Did you catch that as we're going through here? You know, as Jesus was talking to Pilate, Pilate asks him the question, you know, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus just asked him a simple question, you know, are you asking your own question or did someone else put you up to this? And Pilate's kind of offended by that and he says, hey, look, your own people are crucifying you. Don't, don't, don't bring me into this, right? He has a heart of pride. Jesus finally brings him and says, I've come into the world to bear witness of the truth. And Pilate says, well, what is truth? And just leaves the room, right? There's not a, there's not a, a spirit of humility and learning from Jesus but instead it's a spirit of pride that kept Pilate from being able to hear the very truths that God had for him. Now, I won't ask anyone to raise your hand on this, but how many of you think, and, you, and think in your minds as we describe this, how many of you have ever found yourself in an argument with someone else, and while you were in the argument with someone else, arguing over a given topic, you realized in the middle of that argument that you were wrong. Has anyone ever had this experience? And as you're in the middle of this argument and you're going through it, you realize that you're wrong, but because of the pride of your own heart, you don't say, okay, look, I'm wrong, I know you're right. But you kind of persist through it and you keep pushing your own way, even though you know you're wrong, but pride won't let you say, I'm wrong, right? Well, you know, the Bible tells us this is a dangerous symptom to have. Notice what Jesus says in John chapter 7, verse 17. Notice what he says. This is important for our study this evening. Jesus says, if anyone wills to do his what? Will. Now what does that mean, if anyone wills to do his will? If anyone is willing to do what God is saying, right? Isn't that what it says? If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning his what? doctrine, and that's the word that can also be translated teaching. In other words, if you want to know what Jesus teaches, Jesus says there's a prerequisite to it. You have to be willing to do what he shows you 
or else you're not going to learn what Jesus is teaching. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. You see, the very greatest hindrance for us understanding the truth of God in the time that we live in today is not that God doesn't give us His truth. But the question is, is do we have humble hearts that say, Lord, I'm willing to do whatever You tell me to do. I'm not here to prove my own point. I'm not going to Scripture to find what I believe. But Lord, I want to know what does the Bible say? What is Jesus asking me to do? What is Jesus calling us to do in these days? And if we can with a humble heart say, Lord, by Your grace, if You show me these things, I will follow, then the Lord is able to show us His truth. Now we've realized that truth is important to Jesus and that it's important to us today, but yet we realize that even though there's one truth, we have a multiplicity of different churches and different denominations. And the question is, is why are there so many denominations? What does the Bible have to say about this. Well, did you know that the Bible actually gives us an answer to help us to understand this a little bit better? We're going to be studying Revelation chapter 17 to a large degree this evening, and so you'll want to turn to Revelation chapter 17 as we get ready to discuss this. But before we, just as you're going to Revelation 17, stop at chapter 14 before we get to Revelation chapter 17. Revelation chapter 14, and we're just going to pick up and finish off understanding the three angels' messages that we've already started looking at in our study here together. Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 through 5 was our study last evening. Revelation chapter 14, verse 6. Notice what John tells us. Notice what he says is coming in these last days. Revelation chapter 14, verse 6. It says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the what? everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Now if we're just to pause here for a moment, we realize that the gospel is the most important thing in all of Scripture. Would you agree with that? And Jesus tells us that the gospel is what's going to be preached in the last days. That there's going to be a loud cry. That there's this messenger flying in the midst of heaven. And it's just symbolic of the message, the everlasting gospel, going to the entire world, right? To every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. We've looked at this already. And we've seen that God tells us what the everlasting gospel is. He begins to identify what the keys are to this gospel. He tells us that we're a people who are to fear God and to give glory to Him because the hour of His judgment has come. Now, have we seen in our study so far that we are living in the judgment hour of verse history, right? We've seen that through Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 9 that we're living in the time when the final things of this earth are wrapping up. And then God calls us to give glory to Him and to worship Him who made heaven, earth, and the springs of water. In other words, God is calling us back to the true worship of the Creator. And we've looked at that tonight. Or we've looked at that on another night. But notice, this is what we're going to be studying tonight. Verse 8. And it says, Another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. That great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now then it continues on in verse 9-11 through 11, talking about the mark of the beast and the image of the beast. And we've looked at that already in a previous night. 
And tonight what we're going to be looking at is the second message from the second angel of Revelation chapter 14. And the second angel tells us that he's crying with a message. And what is that message? That Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be in a city when it falls. How many of you think that it would be terrifying to be in the midst of New York when the buildings start to crumble? We realize that being in the midst of a falling city is not a safe place to be. But God is giving us a warning that Babylon is fallen. Now, I want to ask you a question. Is this talking about the literal city of Babylon being destroyed? Well, we realize that Babylon was destroyed long ago when the Medes and the Persians took over, right? And tonight what we're going to realize, what is the Bible talking about when it talks about this system of Babylon and Babylon being fallen? This is where we're going to start our study in Revelation chapter 17. Revelation chapter 17, and our question is, who is Babylon? And what does the Bible have to say about this so that we make sure that we're not in the midst of a falling, crumbling city in these last days? Revelation chapter 17. Now, as we get into our study of Revelation chapter 17, we're getting ready to meet not the greatest woman that you've ever met in your life, and this is in Revelation chapter 17. Notice how the Bible describes this person. Revelation chapter 17 and verse 1. It says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great what? Harlot. Now, if you call someone a harlot, is that a very positive thing? Yeah, we don't call people that, right? It's the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth commit fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away into the spirit, into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Now, this is what's depicted on the screen here. That there's a woman that's riding on this beast. She's a harlotrous woman. She's committing fornication. And notice what it continues on to say in verse 4. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written. And notice the name. Mystery. What's that next word? Babylon the Great the mother of harlots of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. Now we'll continue to look at this chapter, but I want to ask you, when the Bible is describing this woman, is this a positive woman? In other words, is this someone we should try to model our lives after? Is this someone who seems like God is very pleased with them? No, well, they're getting ready to experience the judgment of God, right? This is not a very positive thing. Now, what's interesting, in Revelation chapter 17, we're introduced to this woman. Now, just for the sake of understanding, Revelation chapter 12 introduces us to a different woman. Just flip to Revelation 12 really quick. We're not going to spend much time there. We'll spend the whole time on Thursday looking at Revelation chapter 12, these two women of Revelation. But Revelation chapter 12, notice the different depiction here. It says, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, and a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon around her feet, and on her head was a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Now this is not a description of my wife. Notice it continues on 
to help us to know who this person was. Verse 5, she bore a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to His throne. Now, who was that child that was caught up to God? Well, it was Jesus, right? Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by who? By God. God is helping this woman that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Now, we've already seen that time period and we've discussed it a little bit, but we'll look at it more on Thursday night. But the, for the just sake of observation here, we realize that Revelation chapter 17 talks about a woman that we do not want to emulate, right? It's a woman who's experiencing the judgments of God. And in Revelation chapter 12, the Bible tells us about a woman who actually has the favor of God. Would you agree with that? God is protecting her and God is looking out for her. Now, I want to ask you a question. Is the Bible telling us that in the last days there's going to literally be a woman standing on top of the moon? Is that what it's talking about? No, once again, the book of Revelation is symbolic to help us understand the symbolic meaning that God has behind it. In the, book of Revel in the last days, is God going to tell us or that we're going to be seeing a lady riding on a beast that has seven heads and ten horns with Babylon, mystery, the great, the, you know, is that what's going to be happening in the last days? No, no, no. It's symbolic of a, something else that's going to be taking place. Well, the question is, is what does a woman represent in Bible prophecy? What does a woman represent in Bible prophecy? Turn with me just really quick, Isaiah chapter 51. Keep your finger in Revelation 17. Isaiah chapter 51. Isaiah chapter 51, beginning in verse 16. Now we're trying to understand what a woman is in Bible prophecy. Isaiah chapter 51 and verse 16. Notice what God says here. We're laying the foundation for understanding this topic this evening. In Isaiah 51 verse 16, Notice the words that God uses here that are very specific that help us to understand who a woman is. Now this verse doesn't solve our question in and of itself, but it gives us a key and helps us start to answer the question that we have. Isaiah chapter 51 beginning in verse 16, notice it says, And I have put my words in your mouth. I have covered you with the shadow of my hand that I may plant the heavens and lay the foundation of the earth. Now notice this last sentence. And say to who? Who is it? Say to Zion, you are what? My people. Okay, in this passage of Scripture, Isaiah chapter 51, verse 16, the Bible tells us that Zion is known as God's people. Okay, just keep that in mind as we go back to this passage on the screen. Notice what the Bible tells us. Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 2. It says, I have likened the daughter of who? of Zion, who is Zion? My people, right? God's people. I have likened the daughter of Zion to a lovely and delicate woman. Now this is very interesting. The Bible is telling us that He has likened us or used the idea or the imagery of a woman to represent who? Zion or His people or his church, right? You realize that when the Bible says that we are the church of God, it's not talking about the brick and mortar that's around the side of the building. You realize that. But it's talking about the people who are in it. And God is saying, talking about his church in the last days, that his church is likened to a woman. Now, is it a pure woman or not? Yeah, absolutely. We're going to see that it's a pure woman. And notice this passage of Scripture that just helps us to understand this a little more. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2. 
It says, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband. In other words, I have, I have given you in marriage, right? I have given you the woman to one husband, and notice how it continues on, that I may present you as a what? Chast virgin to Christ. The Bible uses the imagery of a pure woman being married to Christ, right? That's just symbolic of the woman being God's church. Now, we see this imagery again in Ephesians chapter 5 and 6, and we won't take the time to go there, but if you have any more questions, make sure to read what Paul says about the, how husbands are to love their, love their wives as Christ what? Love the church, right? He uses that same imagery, and he gave himself for it. So in the Bible, in Bible prophecy, a woman represents God's church, right? The pure woman. Well, in Revelation chapter 17, we find not a pure woman, but what kind of woman do we find? Well, it's the exact opposite, right? It's an impure woman or a harlot. Now, she's a prostitute. She's not faithful to her husband like God is calling his church and his people to be, but this is someone who is unfaithful to God. And now the question that we're going to be looking at is, does the Bible give us enough indications about who this woman is to help us to understand who the Bible is referring to by Babylon when, when the Bible is saying Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Well, like every other night, we've been able to find enough characteristics from Scripture to help us to understand the symbolic, these symbolic details. And tonight, we, we are going to start with the very first one, is that God tells us that His church is a pure woman, right? That's what we see in Revelation chapter 12. But we see that this woman is not a pure woman, but it's a harlotrous woman. It's an, the opposite. So instead of it being God's church, we see that this woman is representing an unfaithful church, right? Isn't that what it means to be adulterous? It means that you are not faithful to your spouse. And here we have the woman in Revelation chapter 17 is a woman who is not faithful to her husband. Who should her husband be? God, but instead of being faithful to God, you see that she's busy being involved with other people. This woman in Revelation chapter 17 represents a harlot woman who is unfaithful to God. She's an unfaithful church. Now, notice what Revelation chapter 17, that's not the only characteristic it gives us, but we're going to be looking through our Bibles, Revelation 17. Notice that it helps us to understand this a little bit more. Verse 1, it says, Then one of the seven angels who had seven bowls came and talked with me, saying, Come, and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot, who we see it's an unfaithful church, who sits on many what? Now, we've, used, we've seen the imagery of waters many times in the Bible, right? In Bible prophecy. A beast rising up out of the water, or a beast rising up on the land. And here we see that this woman is one who sits on many waters. Well, what does that mean? Is she just an amphibious wolf, uh, amphibi amphibious woman? No, 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 that's not what it's talking about, but notice what it says. Skip down to verse 15. The Bible interprets it for us. Revelation chapter 17, verse 15. It says, Then he said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are what? Peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. You see, here is what the Bible calls an unfaithful church, and she has a great amount of influence. Would you agree with that? 
that here she is sitting on the sea or on the water, and that represents multitudes or nations and peoples. There's large groups of people. And so we see that Babylon is first represented by an unfaithful church that has great influence, but notice it doesn't just stop there, but it continues on and tells us in verse 2. Revelation chapter 17 and verse 2. Notice what it says. It says that the great harlot who sits on many waters with whom the kings of the earth do what? Commit fornication. I want to ask you a question. We have to walk through this. It's kind of hard to divide the symbolic language and decipher what Jesus is saying. But we can walk through this slowly and understand it together. That the woman was supposed to have relations with only one person, and that was to be her husband. And symbolically, she was married to Christ. But you see that this woman, instead of being concerned about Christ, her husband, or God, she was more concerned about relationships with who? With kings of the earth. Now, why would she... I want to ask you a question. Why would you be interested in a king of the earth? Well, because kings have what? Influence and power. They have, you know, there's a lot of other things that go along with that. Wealth, they have money, they have whatever else. But you realize that the lady, instead of being concerned with the things of God, was concerned with courting the influence of this world instead of being faithful to God. Can we see that there? That the fornication with the kings means that this lady is looking to have favor with the world instead of just being faithful with God. Isn't that what the Bible is talking about here as we can see it in Revelation chapter 17? Now we're going to go back and review some of these things as we finish through. We're just compiling a list here. But notice verse 2 continues on. And it says, "...with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication." And then it continues on and it says, "...and the inhabitants of the earth..." were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. You see that there's something that's happening because of her influence, because she's sacrificed her relationship with God for a relationship with the world, and now she's courting the influence of the world. Now everyone else in the world, what does it say? It says, then the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. We're going to talk a little bit more about that wine of her fornication or the cup of indignation and read more of what the Bible has to say about it. But something that we can see from here is if she was able to make all the inhabitants of the earth influenced with the wine of her fornication, that means she must have influence over these people, right? And notice it doesn't just say a select group of people on the earth, but it talks about this is a person or this is a church that has universal influence. Would you agree with that? Revelation chapter 12 and verse 2, that's what it's telling. Now there's a couple more characteristics that we're going to look at, and this is what we're going to keep finding as we read on. Notice verse 3. It says, So he carried me away in the Spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a what? A scarlet beast. Okay, let's just pause here really quick. A woman represents what in Bible prophecy? A church. What does a beast represent in Bible prophecy? Most traditionally, what have we realized that it represents? Daniel chapter 7. You guys remember that? Keep your finger here just for proof of this. Turn to Daniel chapter 7, and you'll remember this verse. We've looked at it multiple times. Daniel chapter 7. What does a beast represent in Bible prophecy? Daniel chapter 7. And notice what it says in verse 17. We see a woman who's riding on a 
beast, and notice this is, this is starting to sound familiar from things we've studied already. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 17. And it says, those great beasts which are for, are for what? Kings or kingdoms which shall arise out of the earth. Now this is very interesting. You have the idea of a church, a woman, riding on the back of a king. Now, where else have we looked at anything else in Bible prophecy that talks about a combination between church and state? This is what we're seeing here once again, is that this woman is running with the political power or the civil power, and then it's where we see church and state uniting again. Now, I want to ask you a question. Who is the one who's usually in control? The animal or the one riding the animal? Now, if I was the one riding the animal, it would be the animal, right? I don't know how to deal with that. I've always just dealt with things with motors when I was a kid. But you realize that most people who ride horseback, they're in control of telling that animal where to go, right? And what's interesting is the woman is the one who's dominantly leading the civil powers. Now, we saw this when we looked at United States and Bible prophecy, and also when we looked at the mark of the beast, that there's going to be a combination of church and state coming together. And once again, we see that that's a characteristic of Babylon, that she's riding on the beast. There's this combination of church and state ruling together. Well, notice we want to continue on through here quickly. Revelation chapter 17 and verse 3, it continues on. And notice what John says here. He says, So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman riding, sitting on the scarlet beast, which was full of the names of what? Blasphemy. Have we seen anywhere else in Bible prophecy something else that would be very blasphemous? Notice when they look at her, all they can see is blasphemy. That's a big part of who she is. Now, what does it mean to blaspheme? One who claims to take the place of God and one who claims to what? Forgive sins, right? We've looked at that together throughout Scripture. And so we see that this person is one who would be committing blasphemy as well. Now notice verse 4. It says, The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of the abominations and filthiness of her fornication. I want to ask you a question. Have you guys ever met a homeless person or seen them on the side of the road asking for money, maybe next to one of the exits on the highway or something like that? When you see a homeless person, are they usually dressed in scarlet and purple and wearing gold and decked out in pearls and all these? Is that what a poor person wears? No, right? You would have to be insane to think that poor people possess all of that wealth, right? But what we see here is that this is not a poor church, but it's actually a what? Rich church. It's very wealthy, and this is another characteristic that we find of Babylon. Now we have two more characteristics that we're going to look at. Notice Revelation chapter 17 and verse 6. And we'll get back to some of this other thing, dealing with the cup of her fornication. But notice verse 6 here. It says, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the what? Martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with what? Great amazement. You see, this is a woman, this is a church that is a persecuting church. Would you agree with that? She's responsible for the blood of the saints of Jesus, and we realize that not only is it a rich church, but it's a persecuting church. Now notice verse 9. Here's something that we haven't seen yet in Bible prophecy in talking about this entity, 
But here we have in Revelation chapter 17, verse 9, notice what it says. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are the seven mountains on which the what? Woman sits. Now this is interesting. The Bible tells us that another characteristic of this woman of Revelation chapter 17 is that she's sitting on seven mountains. You might know it a little more familiarly as the person who's sitting on seven hills. Have you ever heard of the city on seven hills? And it's a direct understanding of which city? Rome, the Vatican City. Now, is this very interesting that aren't these characteristics very similar to what we found in Daniel chapter 7, what we found in Revelation chapter 13, that this person representing Babylon is a person that is none other than the Roman Catholic system. Would you agree with that from what we see here? Are these characteristics consistent to what we see in the Vatican? We'll go back and review them, but notice this quote from the Bible commentaries. Notice what it says. It says, state and church are precious gifts of God. But the state being desecrated becomes what? Beast-like. And the church apostatizing becomes the harlot. See, we're not the only ones who have come up with this. Other commentators have also said that it's clear that what the Bible is talking about when it's describing Babylon is that there's a combination between church and state and the state is represented by the beast that they're riding on and the woman is representing the harlot or the apostatized church. Now I want to ask you a question. Do we see the characteristics of Rome fulfilled in this church? Now once again, for those who haven't been here to hear the disclaimer, we're not talking about the people in the system. You agree with that, right? Many sincere, God-loving, fearing people who want to know the Lord Jesus Christ are following God with all of the light that they know, and they're loving the Lord Jesus as Roman Catholics. Would you agree with that? Now, the Bible, though, doesn't want us just to stay in one system, right? Would you agree that the Bible doesn't want us just to say, well, I've done this for the rest of my life. I've done this for all of the generations. You know, my parents were this, and my, my grandparents were this, and because of that, even if God shows me truth, I'm going to stay in this system. Is that what God wants? No, He wants people to come out of that because He realizes that it's a dangerous system that is about to fall. Isn't that what Revelation chapter 14, verse 8 told us? Now notice we're going to look at more of the implications of that in a second, but we're going to review the characteristics of this church. So we see that it is a harlotrous woman or an unfaithful church. Do we see that the Roman Catholic Church has been unfaithful to the Word of God? Well, we would have to be honest. This is why we're Protestants, right? We've come out of that church and we've said we want the Bible and the Bible only, right? That's the Protestant Reformation mantra. And we realize that it's because of the unfaithfulness of that church that many great men like Martin Luther and Zwingli and Huss and others came out in search of the light of the Bible truth. Now, it also tells us that she sits on many waters where it's a universal church. Is the Roman Catholic Church a universal church? That's what the name means. Universal. Worldwide. Now it continues on and it says that the kings worship in her, right? She commits fornication with the kings. She's involved with kings and what she is is a church and if kings are involved with her, they're worshiping with her and we realize that that tells us that she's an influential church. Would you agree with that? She's courting the influence of the world to try to possess the power that they have. Now we also see that she commits fornications with the king. Instead of being faithful to God, her husband, she's now being unfaithful to God and compromising to gain the favor of the world. 
Now it continues on. It says that she wears gold and precious stones. She's a rich church. Is the Vatican a rich church? I just read something two days ago that said what Apple made in one year, the Vatican spent. In other words, the Apple Corporation, the people who made my computer and my phone and my iPad and other wonderful devices, have made $167 billion in one year. The Vatican spent $160 billion in one year. Do we think that they're a wealthy church? Very fitting description here in Revelation chapter 17. Now it says that they're drunk with the blood of the saints. Has the Roman Catholic Church during the Middle Ages and Dark Ages been one who persecutes God's people? Absolutely. You just have to read history to see that that's very clear how it happened. Does, does the very essence of the Roman Catholic system love the fact that they're combined as a political power and a religious power, right? You, the Vatican wouldn't be the Vatican if it didn't have that combination. They are a state and also a church. No other nation like that, but we see that they have political power. Now it says that they sit on seven hills, and you can look it up, type it in Google, and you'll just search city on seven hills, and the first one that comes up is Rome. The Vatican City is known as the city on seven hills, and it's very clear that the Bible is talking about this person being involved in the apostasy of the last day. Now, have you ever wondered, are we having a different understanding than what the apostles did back in the time? Notice what Paul says. Notice this passage of Scripture and it's very interesting. I'm sorry, it's Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13. Now what's very interesting, let's read the verse first and then we'll talk about it. It says, the church that is at where? At Babylon, elected together with you, salutes you. Now, Peter is writing his letter, and at the end of his letter, he says, the church where I am at, the church of Babylon, salutes you. Now, What's very interesting about this, did Peter ever go to Babylon? No? Have you ever read the book of Acts? Peter never went to Babylon. What's interesting is that very commonly in the early Christian church was that they would use the term for Rome, they would use the term Babylon as a code name for the term or the city of Rome. You see, even back in the time of Peter, and you can read commentaries or anything else, that it's very clear that Peter never went to Babylon, but he's writing there from Rome, his last letter, and as he's writing from Rome, he calls it Babylon. In other words, there's this connection that the Roman government and the Roman Catholic Church is also synonymous with Babylon that we find in Revelation chapter 17. Interesting fact that we can see from the Bible. Now, I want to ask you a question. Where does the name Babylon come from? Genesis chapter 11. How many of us have read Genesis chapter 11 before? We won't go through it tonight, but I would encourage you to read it, I was going to say on your way home. If you're not driving, you can read it on your way home. But if you have some time, read Genesis chapter 11. Now, what had happened in Genesis chapter 6, Genesis chapter 7? Do you remember? There was an event that wasn't that popular with many people. There was a guy with a boat and all animals got, right, Noah, right? We're, we're familiar with that story. And Noah was there on the boat, and why did God destroy the world with a flood? Do you remember? Well, the Bible tells us that the thoughts and intentions of the heart were only evil continually. In other words, people had gotten so wicked that God said, hey, look, I can't have you continuing persecuting my people, but we need to put an end to sin. And so God there causes the worldwide flood and he gives an invitation before he ever destroys, does God make people be left out? 
No, no, no. God always gives the invitation to come, and there as Noah was preaching for 120 years, he's calling people into the ark, but because of the stubbornness of their hearts, people refused the message, and Noah and his family were the only ones who were saved. Well, after that event, in Genesis chapter 11, and you can read this, is that the whole language, or the whole world, only had one language. And as they realized that God had just destroyed the world with a flood, they started coming together and saying, hey, look, if there's another flood, we don't want to be wiped out by it. And so this is what we're going to do. We're going to make a tower, and the tower is going to reach to the heavens, right? So if if God sends a flood, all we have to do is climb up this tower, and we'll get to the top of it, and God won't be able to destroy us. Now, that sounds a little bit foolish in my understanding, to be 100% honest. But this is what they, they desired to do. And this is known as the Tower of Babel. Now, that's interesting. We realize that as they were building the tower, that God says, hey, this isn't going to, I'm not going to allow this to happen. And so what does he do? He confuses the language so they can't communicate with each other. So the guy bringing brick and mortar, yeah, I I don't know what you're talking about. You know, there's just this confusion and it falls apart. Well, what's interesting is that the name Babel literally means a confusing or a mix-up. In other words, Babylon, which is where the name Babylon comes from, it's the exact same word as Babel, is the system of confusion. The Bible, when it's talking about this Babylon in the last days, is talking about a system that would confuse religious worship. That people were going to be confused about what was really right and what was really wrong. And it was also a system that was set up to save themselves without God's help. Now, does that sound very familiar about the Babylon that we're hearing in Scripture? That they were trying to save themselves, and it was a confusion of what was really going to be happening. It's the equals. It means to be confused or to mix. Now, we see that Babylon was really just a man-made religion, and that it wasn't something that God ever wanted to happen. It was when the doctrine of men merged with the doctrine of God that Babylon was created. It was paganism merged with Christianity that created Babylon like it is today. Now we're going to look at a couple passages here that help us to understand one of the great questions that we still have to answer about Revelation chapter 17. Revelation chapter 17 and verse 4. Notice what it says. Revelation chapter 17 and verse 4. Revelation chapter 17 and verse 4. It says, Then the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand the golden cup full of what? What does it say? Abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. Now what does the word abomination mean? It means to practice idolatry. That's, that's, you can look it up. You can find that's very clearly what the verse means if you just look in a uh, comment, not commentary, well, you can look in a commentary as well, but just a lexicon of Greek meanings. And abomination means one that's of idolatrous practices. So we see that this woman has a cup that's filled with idolatrous practices. Now, in verse 2, it told us that this woman was making all of the world drunk with the wine of her what? fornications. And once again, we see that her fornications are in her cup. And what is this whole cup about? What is it representing when the Bible talks about it? Well, we realize in that cup is idolatrous practices. Okay, we got that part. But what does it mean that it's full of her fornication? Well, you see that this woman was courting who 
instead of God, she was interested in the kings and the people of this earth. You see, she was more interested about having influence in this world than having faithfulness to God. And as she started compromising, she started to compromise her teachings in order to be more popular with the people of this world. She left the teachings of God and started to go after the things of this world. Now, James chapter 4 and verse 4 tells us that the that enmity, um, that the love of the world is enmity with God. Right? We can't, we can't be experiencing having power in the world and the love of God. In other words, they don't mingle together. And it's fornications, and it's mentioned as wine and the cup of Babylon. We want to look at a couple passages of Scripture that help us to understand this. And before we do it, I want to ask you the question, just looking off of the words that the Bible gives us, what does wine do to you? Does the wine make you a little bit smarter, or does it make you a little more deceived? Now, I'm not asking you, for those of you who have actually experienced this, to tell us what happened, but the Bible tells us one interesting thing. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1, it says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is deceived thereby is not wise. You see that there's the idea of wine and deception in the Bible. Now, we're going to see this consistently throughout. Also, Proverbs chapter 23 talks about people who are drinking. They start to see images of things, and they start to see reality not as it is, but as they think it is, and there's confusion about what really goes on. Now, this is what we're going to be seeing is in the cup of this woman that there is confusion and error. Notice the passage of Scripture here. Jeremiah chapter 5, or 51, verse 7. It says, Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth what? Drunk. Now this sounds very similar to Revelation chapter 17, right? The Bible writers borrow from each other and we see that the nations drank her and therefore the nations were what? Deranged. Now what does that mean? They went mad. They lost their mind. They just didn't have it clearly. They were deceived. They were bewildered. There was error that came in. And because of this wine, there was deception that took place among God's people, right? This is the church. This is the God's people that we're looking at. Now, notice with me two more passages of Scripture about this. Isaiah chapter 28. Isaiah chapter 28. And since we're coming to the end of our meetings, we want to make sure you get your money's worth tonight. So we're trying to go through this as quickly as possible. But this is a little bit of a longer study. Isaiah chapter 28, we'll try to wrap up as soon as possible, but Isaiah chapter 28, what does it say about the wine of Babylon? Notice Isaiah chapter 28 and verse 7. Isaiah chapter 28 and verse 7, notice what the prophet says. But they also have what? Erred through wine. Now there's this idea that wine caused them to error. There's a connection between confusion and error and wine, right? We're seeing that in Scripture. Now notice it continues on. And through intoxicating drink are out of, uh, out of the way. The priests and the prophets have erred through intoxicating drink. There it is twice. They are swallowed up by wine and they are out of the way through intoxicating drink. They err in vision and they stumble in judgment. Now, this is very interesting. Constantly, there's error, error, error connected with the wine of Babylon. Now, it's interesting. What is in that cup? It's definitely the errors that came out of Babylon. Would you agree with that? That's what we're finding in Scripture. One last passage. Actually, we'll skip that passage. If you have any more questions about it, we'll discuss it later. 
the question that we want to answer is what, does, what is in that cup of Babylon? Well, we see it's fornication, it's abominations, the idolatrous practices, but it's also her courting the world. And in order to gain favor with the world, we realize that that wine is error, right? So she starts to introduce error to court the world and to lose God. This is why she's committing the abominations. Now, we can kind of put it clearly on the screen to help us understand this, that the golden wine cup in her hand represents the intoxication of what? False doctrine. Isn't that what we're finding in Scripture? And we're looking through that. And you can see that Jesus uses the idea of wine and doctrine other places in Scripture. And this is what we're finding, that in this lady's cup, there is the wine of false doctrine. Now we know that what was the influence that this wine was going to have? Revelation chapter 17 told us that it was going to make all the inhabitants of the earth what? Drunk. It was going to impact everyone. Now once again, we realize that everyone is impacted except those whose names are in the Lamb's book of life, right? We've always found those two groups. And what we see in Revelation chapter 17 is that the Bible talks about these errors, these doctrinal errors coming out of Babylon are going to influence the rest of the world and make them drunk. Now this is where you won't want to miss, and this is kind of the crux of the study that we're looking at tonight as we look at some of these quotes together. Notice this by Alexander Hislop. It says, to conciliate the pagans to nominal Christianity, Rome, pursuing its usual policy, took measures to get the Christian and pagan festivals, what's that word? Amalgamated. In other words, they wanted to mix the two. In order for Constantine to gain the favor of Rome, he had to mix the pagan festivals and the Christian thing. Now notice it continues on, and to get paganism and Christianity now far sunk in what? Idolatry, right? We saw abominations, which is idolatrous practices, and this, as in so many other things, to shake hands. You see that the, the goal of the Roman Catholic Church was to merge idolatrous practices and Christianity so that now they could be one. It was by the confusion of their doctrine that they were able to do this. Now we're going to notice a couple of other passages here. Christian History, Century 2, Chapter 2, Section 7. Now remember that. Christianity became an established religion in the Roman Empire and did what? Notice, you see that word? And took the place of paganism. Now, why would something take the place of something else? Because it was so much like it. It was its substitute. You didn't even need anything else. So we see there's this merging of Christianity and paganism. Christianity, as it existed in the Dark Ages, might be termed baptized paganism. Now, if you've read the history, you'll, you'll understand that, that it's very clear what happened in the Middle Ages. Now, notice this one. History of the Christian religion. Such were those who, without any real interest, whatever in the concerns of religion, living half in paganism and half in an outward show of Christianity, comprised the crowds that thronged the churches on the festivals of the Christians and the theaters on the festivals of the pagans. You get what he's saying? Hey, look, there's one group of people. And that same group of people, they would go to church and they would be involved in the Christian things, but that same group of people, they weren't really Christian because they would go to the pagan festivals and they would be your audience there as well. Does that make sense? In other words, you're the, the, the Christians were the audience in the Colosseums watching all the horrors of paganism, but they were also the ones sitting in church. 
because they had blurred the lines between Christianity and paganism, and now we see that there's false doctrines that become out of this system. It says Babylon was the primal source from which all these systems of idolatry flowed. Now it's very clear that this is a system of Babylon. Idolatry is what was central to their worship. The image worship of Babylon was something that was so clearly established there that it was, it was second nature. And so when they carried this over to the church in order to merge Christianity and paganism, they had to keep this image worship and bring it into the church, right? We've talked about this a little bit already. And we see that many of the statues that the church was not familiar with before, like this one, St. Peter, right? In St. Peter's Basilica, was actually Jupiter. In other words, there was this merging of the idolatrous practices between paganism and Christianity, and now it's brought into the church. Now I want to ask you, is this a good thing or a bad thing? How does the Bible describe it? It's a cup of fornication, right? It's a cup of error. It's erroneous doctrine. Do you want anything to do with erroneous doctrine? Absolutely not. If so, that's why we're, we wouldn't be here, right? We wouldn't be studying the Bible together. But notice there's some other things that crept in with this that the Bible talks about. It tells us that Babylon the, the center of, was the center of false teaching about death. Now we could go into some of the history of what Babylon believed about death and their, their kind of reincarnated state or that the soul never dies and all of these things. But what's very interesting is that the idea about what happens when you die that many Christians believe today does not come from the Bible but comes from Babylon. It's interesting, the Bible says that the doctrine of the immortal soul is not in the Bible. In other words, when you die, what happens? You die. You sleep, right? You stay in the grave in the loving arms of Jesus, resting, waiting for the resurrection. And this is what the Bible clearly teaches. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 5 and 6. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know not. They know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love, their hatred, and their envy have now perished. The Bible is very clear that when you die, you die, right? This is but the idea that when you die, you really go into some other spirit form was an idea that came out of Babylon, one of the false doctrines of the system of paganism. Now, notice some people say, well, when you die, you just go into heaven or you go into hell. You have this immortal soul. But who does the Bible tell us is the only one who possesses the immortal soul? Notice what 1 Timothy chapter 6 says. It says, He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone, what? Possesses immortality. You see, the idea of the immortal soul came not from the Bible, but it came from Babylon, and it was part of the fornications or the false doctrine or false teaching that Satan was stirring up to confuse God's people in the last day. Now, this is a really interesting passage. It says the early church clearly identified the doctrine of the soul's, uh, the soul's natural immortality as coming directly from Satan. Now, some of you are saying, prove it to me. I would like, to, like you to look at this quote here by Justin Martyr, one of the early church fathers. Notice what he says. This is from AD 100 to AD 165. He says, if you have fallen in, some, in with some who are called Christians but who do not admit this truth about the resurrection and venture to blaspheme the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob who say there is what? No resurrection of the dead and that their souls 
and that their souls, when they die, are taken to heaven, do not imagine that they are what? Christian. Now, is that a strong statement? Notice, I didn't say that. That's coming from the early church fathers. This idea of never dying, never, never you know, experiencing actual death, and just going to heaven immediately when you die is not in the Bible. And we've talked about this, and if you missed that night, please feel free to pick up the handouts and the CDs on that. But it's clear that it's not from the Bible, but it's from Babylon and the confused doctrine of that time. Now, we're people who don't want the doctrine of Babylon, and we don't want what isn't of God. Now, we realize that Babylon wasn't only confused about the state of the dead. They weren't only confused about idol worship, but they were also the ones who centered their worship around the sun god. Notice these passages here. It says, in ancient Babylonia, the sun was worshipped from immemorial antiquity. In, In other words, as far back as you can remember, Babylon has always worshipped the sun. History of the Eastern Church. It says the retention of the old pagan name of Dies Solis, which just means Day of the Sun, S-U-N, not S-O-N, for Sunday, is in a great measure owing to the union of paganism and Christian sediment, which, uh, with which the first day of the week was recommitted, or yeah, was recommended by Constantine to his subjects pagan and Christian alike as the venerable day of the sun. Now this is the edict from 321 where Constantine says, hey, we're going to unite paganism with Babylon, with uh, Christianity, and in a way to do that is we're going to bring in the immortality of the soul, the confusion about death, we're going to be confusion about sun worship, and instead of worshiping God on the true day that he says, we're going to worship him on Sunday, the venerable day of the sun. This comes from pagan, not from the Bible. Notice what the Baptist manual says about this. It says, What a pity that it, Sunday, comes branded with the mark of paganism and christened with the name of the sun god, then adopted and sanctioned by the papal apostasy and bequeathed as a sacred legacy to who? Protestantism. You see, the Bible tells us that there's going to be confusion, doctrinal confusion coming out of Babylon. Isn't that clear? That there's going to be confusion about the state of the dead. There's confusion about days that you worship. There's confusion about image worship. And God is saying that's not something that He wants, but really it's fornication or adultery going away from the clear teachings of God into mingling with what the world said. Now notice that the Bible doesn't stop there. Revelation chapter 17 and verse 5, the verse is on the screen. We've read it once already. But notice what it says. Revelation chapter 17 and verse 5. And on her forehead, a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, and and notice this next part, the mother of what? Harlots and of the abominations of the earth. It's interesting here that it says there's a harlot, but she's not alone, right? She's a mother, and what type of people are her children? Harlots as well, right? They're continuing in the same practice as their mother. Notice these quotes, and we find it interesting how the Bible describes it. Pope John Paul II says, it must always be clear when the expression sister churches is used in the proper sense that the one holy Catholic and apostolic universal church is not sister, but what? Mother of all particular 
churches. In other words, he says, hey, look, we're not the sister, but we're the mother. We are the ones where, pay, where Protestantism has come from, and all of the other churches come from us. Notice what he continues to say. Talking, this is what John uh, Ratzinger, Joseph Ratzinger, sorry, which is known as Pope Benedict, has been known to say. He says that with the Pope's approval and blessing, he received, uh, released Dominius Yeses, which claims the salvation is possible only in the what? The Roman Catholic Church. Now, this is what they teach, that you can't be saved apart from the Mother Church. Now, is that true? No. We realize that salvation is through Jesus Christ, that we can have salvation in Him, but notice he continues on. And that other ecclesiastical communities are no longer to be referred to as sister churches because we are not sister. Rome is the Mother Church. Now, I think it's very clear who the mother church is, who Babylon is, the one riding on the beast, right? We realize that it's none other than the Roman Catholic Church, but the question is, who are the daughters? Who are the daughters? You know, the Bible uses an expression that helps us understand this a little bit. Ezekiel 16.44. Notice what it says. Ezekiel 16 is an interesting chapter. Go ahead and take some time to read it when you haven't run out, when you haven't run out of time when you're preaching. And notice what it says. Ezekiel chapter 16 talks about these harlotrous women and then their daughters coming. Ezekiel chapter 16 and verse 44. Speaking at the end of talking about these women, notice Ezekiel chapter 16 and verse 44. It says, Indeed, everyone who quotes Proverbs will use this proverb against you. Like mother... What's that next part? Like daughter. Have you ever heard the expression today? Like father, like son. Or the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. What are we saying? In other words, your children are just what? They're like you. In other words, if the mother harlot has confused doctrine, then the confusion is going to trickle down to her children and those who continue in that error are part of the daughters that are being described here in Revelation chapter 17. You see, if we're living in, if we're believing in part of churches that teach the error of Babylon, then how can we not clearly see that it's part of the Babylonian daughters? If we believe in the immortality of the soul, if the church teaches that, if they teach Sunday worship and the image worship or any of those pieces, how can we say that's not confusion that comes straight from Babylon? Notice what these passages say. This one really helps us to understand this. And this is from John O'Brien. And notice what he says. It's very clear and pointed here. He says, since Saturday, not Sunday, is specified in the Bible, isn't it curious that non-Catholics who profess to take their religion directly from the Bible and not from the church, which church is he talking about? The Roman Catholic Church observe Sunday instead of Saturday. In other words, he's saying, you know, you, you claim to be Protestant, the Bible and the Bible only, but, well, hey, look, the only evidence you have the, for that you go to church on Sunday is because the church told you to do it. Notice, he continues on. He says, yes, of course, it is inconsistent, but this change was made about 15 centuries before Protestantism was born. In other words, this is clearly known. And by that time, the custom was universally observed. He continues. They have continued the custom even though it rests upon the authority of the Catholic Church and not upon the explicit text in the Bible. He's saying, why are we doing this? Why are we being inconsistent? If you're claiming to be Protestant, 
and you're not claiming to get your, your directions from Rome, then why are you following the Roman an example of keeping Sunday? Notice how he describes it. He says that observance remains as a reminder of the mother church from which the non-Catholic sects broke away like a boy running away from home but still carrying in his pocket a picture of his mother or a lock of her hair. You see, he's saying this is just so inconsistent. I don't understand if you're trying to take the Bible and the Bible only, and then you start saying, well, no, no, we're going to worship on Sunday, and you want nothing to do with the Roman Catholic Church. It's like a boy running away from home wanting nothing to do with his mother, but carrying a picture of her and a little lock of her hair. It's a constant reminder of who she is. He says, if you're going to be consistent with the Bible, you, you shouldn't be doing this. This isn't clearly what's clear from Scripture. You see, God has always allowed there to be people throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity who are there with the torch of truth. You see, there have been people during the time of the Reformation when the Roman Catholic Church was in power who started to come out and to follow the teachings of Jesus. Now you realize that one of the first and most prominent people that we know about is the man Martin Luther, right? He said, I don't want to follow the ways of this church. I don't want to follow Babylon and I don't want to be part of Babylon. And so Luther comes out and he starts following what the Lord tells him. Now, did you know that, the, that Luther never set up the Lutheran church per se? Lutheran was just there. He was following the example of the Bible. He was pursuing whatever God would show him. That's what he wanted to do. But after Luther passed away, some people said, you know what? What Luther believed was really good. And we should just take whatever Luther believed and we'll be Lutherans. In other words, we'll just believe what he says. Now, I'm not saying this lightly. My uncle's Lutheran. We're not here to talk badly about anyone. We're just talking about history. And people there say, well, we just need to be Lutheran and follow the example of whatever Lutheran taught, we will do it. But the question is, did they continue to learn from what the Bible says and progress in knowledge? That's what made Martin Luther Martin Luther. Martin Luther was willing to change when he was seeing things clearly from the Bible. Well, out of that, we see that there was John Knox, and there was Newton, and there was Wesley, the, one of the founders of the Methodist church, great reformers, who were so faithful to God and to the Bible. And they were constantly coming into more knowledge of the truth. And they didn't stop and say, hey, this is where the church stops. But what they said is just, let's keep pursuing the Bible, the Bible and the Bible only, and if Jesus teaches it, then let's believe it. But once again, we realize that it's easier to just stop looking at the Bible for ourselves and just go off of what other people said. And we realize that other churches were erected, not coming into the full knowledge of the truth, but stopping and being satisfied with what they had. You see, we're in the last days of earth's history. And the question is, how can we be ready for when Jesus comes? The Bible doesn't tell us that we can be ready for when Jesus comes as long as we're part of a church with a certain name. Is that what it says? No, we have to be people who are people of the Bible. Regardless of what we've known to be true for the rest of our lives, we have to say, Lord, if you're showing me, I need to act on it. Notice how the Bible writer tells us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10, the reason why these people weren't saved. Notice what it says. They did not receive what? A love of the truth that they might be saved. You see, it doesn't say that these people didn't know the truth. I can't tell you how many people have heard the similar topics that we've gone through night after night, learning the truth of Scripture. It's not that we don't know the truth, and that's not why people are lost in the last days, but it's because they don't love the truth. You see, Jesus knew that the truth was so important that He says, I am the way, the truth, 
and the life. You see, when people are rejecting truth from the Bible, they're not rejecting something that's just on its own and sterile, but they're rejecting Jesus Christ. Jesus says that He is the way, the truth, and the life. Now it's very clear that we need to be people who love the truth. God doesn't want us to be people who are just following along with the things of this world, but God wants us to be a people who love the truth. I'm going to go through a quick list here. You ask people and you survey people the top reasons why you choose a church. And notice what the survey shows. Top reasons why people choose a church. Number one, it's the church my parents went to. Well, that's, that's fine. That's good. There's nothing wrong with that, but in and of itself, that's the church that my parents went to. It's close to my house. Okay, I can save some gas money and get there quickly. All the influential people go there. In other words, if maybe the president goes there or someone else I like, that's why I go there. They have a good children's program. Now that's important. Children are important. They're a heritage from the Lord. But should that be our only reason for going to a church? It's a really nice building. In other words, you walk in and you're just in awe of the splendor of this place. The music is phenomenal. Now, should the reason that we go to church just be because of the music? No, but we've shifted a lot in our cultures today. There's nothing wrong with good music, right? We all love good music. But it says that the music is phenomenal. That's one of the top reasons why they go. And then the other thing is, well, the people are loving. Now, is it important to be loving? Should a church be loving? Absolutely. Jesus tells us that a church should be loving. But are these the reasons why we should choose a church? Are these the reasons why we should make our choices in our spiritual life? You see, Jesus told us that His church church would be rooted and have the pillar and the foundation of truth, right? In other words, the reason why you choose a church is because the truth of God's Word matches up with what that church teaches. And if some of these other things come into line, that's just a bonus. But God is saying, when we are people in the last days, we don't want to be confused with the doctrines of Babylon. We don't want to be confused with the doctrines of Babylon that come from the Roman Catholic Church or the doctrines of Babylon that come out of common churches today, but we want to clearly see what does the Bible say? What does God call us to do? There's an eternal principle, and it's that you do not go to church to find the truth, but you go to the Bible to find the truth. When you find the truth, you look for a church, not vice versa, right? We're not going to a church saying, is this truth? Well, just teach me whatever you believe. No, no, no. We're going to the Bible and saying, what does the Bible say? And when you find the truth, you look for a church that teaches that truth. It says in every apostate or world-conforming church, there are some of God's invisible and true church who, if they would be safe, must what? Come out. Now this isn't just someone's opinion. Notice what Jesus says talking about Babylon in Revelation chapter 18 and verse 4. Revelation chapter 18 verse 4. And this is where we're winding down and closing. Revelation chapter 18. Talking about the same thing that we've been talking about with Babylon. It continues on in its description. Revelation chapter 18. And it says, After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, verse 1, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying what? Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. Now we saw that in Revelation chapter 14. And has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. 
The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. Notice verse 4. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of what? Her. Babylon. Come out of the religious confusion. Come out of the doctrinal misunderstandings. Come out of her, my what? People, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. You see, when the Bible is calling and giving this warning, God gives us hope. He tells us that in the last days, there will be people who are involved in Babylon or one of the daughters of Babylon. And it's not that they're not His people. What's the language that He uses? Come out of her what? My people. In other words, they're followers of God. And as they're continuing to walk in the light of God, God continues to reveal more light on their pathway. And as they see the light of Jesus, they follow Him. You know, Jesus says it this way. He says, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep. And I am known by my own. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. You know, Jesus also says, many sheep I have which are not of this fold. Jesus is calling His people out of the systems of religious confusion into His people. And He's calling us to be people who are not deluded with the confusions of this world, but who allow Jesus through the Bible to be the source of our knowledge. There's the story of a man by the name of Harry Truman who lived on the campground at Spirit Lake on the side of Mount St. Helens. Now, this was in 1980. And in 1980, people started to get a little worried that Mount St. Helens was going to what? It was going to erupt. Well, here, our good old friend, as he heard people, people would come to Harry and say, Harry, this mountain is going to erupt. It's time to get out. Now, Harry said, I don't think you understand something. I've lived here my whole life. I've been here just fine. I'm 80-some years old. I am not getting out of here. This is where I've been for my whole life. Well, one day as Harry was sleeping, in the middle of the night, there was such a strong earthquake from the volcanic movement that Harry was actually knocked off of his bed in his sleep. Now, God was sending Harry a warning. And in that warning, what do you think Harry did? Do you think he took that as a warning to get out of there? No, Harry took it as a warning that now he's going to move his bed to the floor so he doesn't fall anymore, right? That just makes sense. Well, Harry there is on the floor because he realizes that troublous times are coming and people are warning him, calling Harry to come out because of what's getting ready to happen. Well, not many days later, May of 1980, the mountain erupted, and just like Harry said, he didn't go anywhere. He's still there to this day, somewhere buried under the rocks of that mountain. And what's interesting about this story is it's very similar to the call that God has given us. He's calling us to come out. God is calling us to come out of religious confusion. He's telling us to come out of her, my people. But many people today say, well, this is all I know. This is where I've been. This is where I'm comfortable at. But God isn't saying that. He's saying come out because it's getting ready to be dangerous. There's getting ready to be more confusion around there. And I'm calling you to follow the truth that I've been revealing to you. You know, there's some of you who tonight who have been learning the truths of the Bible and the Holy Spirit's been bringing you here. You know, I don't know if you realize this, but I realize it very clearly that the reason that you're here is not because I'm a good preacher, because I really don't know how to preach. But I realize that the reason why you're here and the reason why I'm here is because the Holy Spirit is speaking to our hearts. The Holy Spirit is clearly showing us in the Bible what is truth. If it wasn't the case, you wouldn't be here. 
And as the Lord is revealing things to us, the question is, are we going to follow in the things that He's revealing? Is it enough to just know the truth? No, we're told that it's because they didn't receive a love of the truth that they weren't saved. My question and my appeal for you this evening is how many of you say, Lord, I want to follow your truth. I want to follow your truth in whatever you tell me. If it means to come out, I want to come out. If it means to stay, I want to stay. Lord, if it means to follow you in another step, I want to follow you in another step. Notice God doesn't call you to follow Him in something you don't understand. Well, I still have questions about such and such. Well, that's fine, but follow in what God has made clear. Does that make sense? And as the Lord is calling us, how many of you want to say this evening, Lord, by Your grace, I want to be faithful in following what You're calling me to do. I want to be faithful in following the truth of Your Word and coming out of the religious confusion and into the marvelous light of Jesus Christ. If that's your desire this evening, I want to invite you to stand. And ask you to stand and say, Lord, I want to follow You in all truth. I don't want there to be anything between me and the Savior. But Father, I want to stand and say, Lord, whatever Your will is, let it be done in my life. Father, Lord, You see those of us who are standing. Father, we're not standing because we think we have any power in ourselves to to come out of the confusion of this world, but we're standing here because we know that Your Spirit has been sent to lead us into all truth. And Father, we're here because we want to follow You. We might be nervous. We might be concerned about what it means to follow You in all truth, but Lord Jesus, we know that You're going to be with us even till the end of the age. Father, we're thankful that Jesus was willing to make a stand on our behalf. That Jesus was willing to die even when He was deserted by His friends and His family. And Father, we pray that we would be willing to follow You whatever it might cost. We surrender our hearts and our lives to You this evening. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.